1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. A recent article in the New York Times was titled, Could Doomsday Bunkers Become the New Normal? The article talked about this recent spike over the past year in people who are buying, purchasing these rather expensive underground bunkers. And the companies that are designing and building these bunkers are reporting a boom in sales, and they're also reporting from the buyers that buyers simply want to protect their families from an increasingly turbulent world. The CEO of one of these bunker companies said this, but you do not need to go into a bunker to save yourself from the coronavirus. No one has bought a shelter from me to hide during the pandemic, but many people have bought it because of the pandemic. They feel that this is the beginning of something a lot bigger, and they feel it in their gut, raises the question, how do you relate to a troubled and to a broken world? John, in this passage, offers a solution that is far better than purchasing a bunker and hiding in it. He offers a solution that teaches us how to relate to a broken world, how to relate to the world around us. And first, he speaks of relating to the world with confidence, with confidence. Before he gets to verse 15, which is where he's gonna to begin to lay out some commands on how you're to relate to the world, he lays a foundation in verses 12 to 14 of confidence as you face the world. And he's going to talk about confidence in regards to sin and then confidence in regards to the world. So first, in regards to sin, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Into verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, who are the children here? Well, he's writing to Seemingly three people, children, young men, fathers. But every other time in his letter when he refers to children, he's referring to everyone, all believers, all that are reading his letters. And so really what we see here is it's not three groups of people, it's really two. 
And when he talks about children, he's talking about everyone. And he says to them, to everyone, he says, your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. Now, why is that significant? Well, remember the context. There was a group of people who broke away from this church to whom John is writing to start their own fellowship around beliefs that were not consistent with the gospel. One of those beliefs that we saw in chapter one is that they no longer sinned. They didn't think they sinned anymore, that they had received this special anointing from God that had taken them to a new level where they didn't sin anymore and they were at a whole new level of intimacy with the Father. Now, imagine what that was producing in the believers in this church. They were looking at their lives going, I'm still sinning. So maybe I'm not worthy enough to get that special anointing that these other people got. Maybe I'm a second-class citizen. Maybe God really does play favorites or he saw something in these people, gave them a special anointing, and now they don't sin anymore and they really know the Father. You can imagine the lack of confidence, the doubt that this started to cast into these believers as they looked at their sin. And so it's into that context that he says, your sins have been forgiven. You know the Father. What's the foundation of your confidence? There's really only two choices, two options. Your confidence is either founded in what you do for God or it's founded in what God does for you. One of those is a cracked and crumbling foundation and one is solid. Imagine if you were building a house in a neighborhood and you built it on a sandy foundation, just an awful foundation. You build this house and then you spend the next five years hiring a company to come fix your foundation, fix the cracks. The walls in your house are cracking because of it and you are emotionally stressed, you're financially stressed. You have no capacity to relate to your neighborhood, to your neighbors around you. You're absolutely consumed with fixing this foundation. If your confidence is founded on what you do for God, then you've got a crumbling foundation that you will be constantly trying to patch and fix, which I would call navel-gazing. You're constantly looking inward, constantly trying to measure up because your foundation is falling apart. Can't relate to the world around you. Don't relate to anyone around you. People, world, neighbors, coworkers, because you're so consumed. That's a, that's a cracking, crumbling foundation. If your foundation is built on what God has done for you, that frees you from shame. It frees you from guilt. It frees you from navel-gazing and actually allows you to pick your eyes up on the world around you and the people around you. Right? So John starts with this foundation of confidence to say, your sins are forgiven. Get your eyes up. You know the Father. But second, he's going to lay a foundation of confidence in regard to the world around these first century believers in the world in which we live. Verse 13. 
I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, what's the context again? This group of people, it's possible that it was of the demographic ranks of the young men in this congregation, which is why he puts such a focus on the young men. These, this group, maybe a number of young people that broke out, and now they were proclaiming this false gospel. And they were spreading it. And we can assume they were probably winning some converts. And so the believers in this church are looking out at what's happening. And people are moving to this falsehood and this false gospel, and they're going, oh my goodness, what's going on? If I could sum up what John is saying in verse 13 and 14, it's two words. Don't panic. Don't panic. Why? He says, because you've overcome the evil one. Right? What he does here is he does locate false doctrine and false gospel and false beliefs. He locates it in the work of the evil one. It's the work of the devil. The devil's at work. But then he reminds them where the devil stands and where they stand, which is the devil's been defeated, that Jesus, when he died and rose from the dead, defeated the devil. And because they have faith in Christ, they likewise have overcome evil. And they can rest in that. Later in, in 1 John 4.4, 4, John says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 3, 8, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The power of Satan is negligible compared to the power of Christ. Christ has already won. He's defeated evil. Yes, he's alive. Yes, he's at work, but he's terminally ill. And Christ has power over him and over the world. And so he tells these first century believers to relax and don't panic because the victory has been won. Notice his encouragement here. What he's doing is he's shifting their focus from the battle that they can see, which seems to be, that they seem to be losing to the battle which has already been won. He's shifting their focus from the battle they seem to be losing. Look at all these people moving out, joining this fellowship, false beliefs, false gospel, perverting the gospel, distorting the truth. John says, get your eyes off of that because that battle is downstream from a battle that's already been won. Shift your focus to the battle that's been won by your Savior, Jesus Christ who has overcome. How do you relate to the world? This is incredibly relevant for our day because we live in a world right now, and the last year has escalated this, to a phrase that's a very hot topic right now called culture wars. And what that basically means is that there's a lot that is being redefined in our culture. Right? Sexual morality is being redefined. Sources of authority are being redefined. Gender identity is being redefined. The dignity of human beings is being redefined. All of this is bound up in what are called culture wars. Here's the problem. 
Culture wars are about winning, about beating, about conquering. We're not fighting a culture war that hangs in the balance. We're fighting a spiritual battle that has already been won. And that's the confidence that John is giving these readers. It's the confidence he gives you today. Confidence in regards to your sin, confidence in regards to the world. And it's out of that confidence. Then he moves on to the, the next truth of how we relate to the world. And that is with discernment. So with confidence, but then he moves into discernment. And this is where out of the foundation of confidence, he moves into how you actually engage the spiritual battle that's already been won. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, to understand this command, you got to understand the definition of world that John is using. Because if you get the definition of world wrong, you go to some really unhealthy places. By world here, John does not mean the physical or material world in which we live. How do you know that? Well, he says, do not love the world or things in the world. People are things in the world. People are created objects. And the scriptures are clear that we are called to love people, even our enemies. So Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. We're called to love people. We're called to love our enemies. So that's the first piece of evidence that says clearly John's not talking about the physical or the material world here. But the second piece would be to look at the life of Jesus himself. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, loved the world or enjoyed the world to a sufficient enough degree that he was accused of excess. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The scripture makes it clear that we're not to hate the world. In fact, just the opposite. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The world belongs to God. God made a material world because God loves the material world and he calls you to love the world as well. So you say, well then, what world is John telling us not to love? And that is the world of values that are opposed to God. The world of values that are opposed to God. The realm in which God does not rule or where God is not worshiped. The, uh, everything in this world that doesn't belong in God's beautiful material world that he originally created perfect. And so what are the world of values opposed to God that you're not to love? Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, 
and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Desires of the flesh, sinful cravings of the body. Desires of the eyes, that's sinful cravings that are activated by what you see and produce coveting. And then pride in possessions, that's personal pride over what you own and all the toil to acquire it. And you can see the progression here, right? Sinful cravings of the body that are activated by what you see, that produce coveting, and eventually you acquire what you covet. And then you become proud at what you've acquired. Your worth, your reputation, your significance, your meaning attached to what you possess. That's pride in possessions. Something that you've worked hard for, that you've gotten, and now that becomes your your worth and your reputation. The key to understanding John's command here to not love the world is to understand what he means by desires. Right? The word desires also gets translated lust. John here is not condemning desire. We all desire things because we're created in the image of God. We're created to desire. But when the desire, ultimate desire, is not met in relationship with God through the person and work of Christ, then our desires for created things become too important and too strong, which leads to sinful desires. So when your desire ultimately isn't met in a relationship with God, you're then gonna turn to the world to created things and that desire is gonna become too strong and lead to sinful desires. Let me give you an example of this. Your desire for good food is not bad. That's a good desire. Your desire for too much good food is bad, sinful. That's called gluttony. What we see here is that John is calling you to relate to the world not by separation, but through discernment. Right, Not to relate to the world through separation, but to relate to the world through discernment. Right, If this passage is interpreted as a call to separate from the world, then it leads to very unhealthy Christian subcultures, which, when you peel the onion layers back, are not much different than the world. Let me give you an example of this. Let's talk about the world of music, right? The world of music. Relating to the world of music through separation produces a Christian music subculture or industry. Now, I'm not bashing Christian music. Christian music's fine. But what happens is when it is a separation from the world, it creates a subculture and an industry. And I've talked to musicians who have been in both worlds, the Christian music industry world and the non-Christian music industry world, and they've said there is not much difference. Now, on the surface there is, lyrics are different, very different, but when you get past that, you see the same greed. You see the same producing a song and producing lyrics just to sell. You see the same compromise. You see the same hypocrisy, right? That's all there. 
And the question is why? Because the problem's not music. The problem is sin. Problems, the sinful desires of the flesh and of the eyes and, and pride and possessions. That's where the problem lies. So separation doesn't fix that. Because sin's in the heart and it comes with you. Philosopher Al Walters writes this. The great danger is to always single out some aspect of God's good creation and identify it rather than the alien intrusion of sin as the villain. Something in the good creation is identified as the source of evil. As far as I can tell, the Bible is unique in its rejection of all attempts to either demonize some part of creation as the root of our problems or to idolize some part of creation as the solution. The great danger is to relate to the world through separation. Separation is easy, and it never results in flourishing. Discernment is hard work, but it results in flourishing. I was reading an article this past week. It was in the Washington Post a little while back, and it was about a group of people that you and I would quickly categorize as those who relate to the world through separation, and that is the Amish. Now, when you think of the Amish, what do you think of? Think of horse and buggy going down the road, and you think of absolute rejection of technology. This article revealed a little bit more of a thoughtful process that goes on in that community when it comes to technology. In fact, what it, what it revealed is that when an, when an Amish community member is considering a new technology, the people of the community ask whether it will be helpful or harmful to relationships in the community. So it gave a couple of, of examples. There was an Amish member of a community who wanted to purchase a hay baler to make the baling of hay more efficient. And the people in the community wondered that if this hay baler was purchased, if it would take away from relationships of those workers that work to bale the hay together. Another example. One member was looking to run propane gas into every room in the house so that at night, every room would have light instead of just in the living room. And the people in the community, the Amish people in the community, wondered that if that happened, it would drive the family apart because now the kids and everyone would retreat into their rooms at night where there was light instead of huddling in the living room together around this single light. Now, everybody's getting a little bit nervous now. I am not suggesting that you adopt the Amish approach to technology. Uh, you're way past that at this point. Okay, you're carrying an iPhone with you, okay? I'm not suggesting that, but what I am suggesting is that you adopt the practice of discernment. And you begin asking the right questions when it comes to engaging and relating to the world. 
not separating on the one end of the spectrum, not critical, uncritically consuming on the other end of the spectrum, but operating with discernment as you relate to the world. So how do you relate to the world? With confidence, with discernment, and finally, with hope. With hope. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, what world is passing away? Well, it's not the physical material world. We've already seen what John means by world. He's not saying the physical material world is going to pass away. He says the world of values that are opposed to God are going to pass away. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 7.31. He says, for the present form of this world, the present form of this world is passing away. It's the desires that are opposed to God and his ways that are passing away and that will pass away. Several summers ago, our family went to Tennessee on vacation and we did the, uh, we did the gym mining, right? You buy this bag of dirt and rocks. And you take it and you pour it into this wooden frame that has a screen in the bottom and then you lower it into the trough of water and you shake it around a little bit and all the dirt passes through and washes away. And what's left are the rocks and the the really beautiful gems. This is the imagery that John is evoking as he talks about the world passing away. Right, that the values that are opposed to God, that sin, that that is going to pass through and be washed away. What will remain? What will remain is whoever does the will of God, that person will abide and remain forever. In other words, doesn't pass through the screen and be washed away. Well, now who is the only person, the only human being that has ever perfectly abided to the will of God, abided by the will of God? It's Jesus Christ. There were some people when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, they were asking him, What were the works that they were required to do? They said, Jesus, what are the works that we have to do to do the works of God? And Jesus replied in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That when you believe, in Jesus Christ, and you put your trust in Christ, and you attach yourself to Christ by faith, that when the screen of judgment comes, when the world and everyone is passing through this screen of judgment, those that are attached to Christ will remain forever. And not only remain forever, but remain forever in a new physical world. There's two pieces of hope that come out of this verse 17. Two pieces of hope. Number one is this, that when Christ returns and this world passes through the screen of judgment, that you and I are not going to, for eternity, live in this immaterial spiritual existence in the clouds. 
Right? John's not saying physical, material, bad world passes away and now suddenly we're gonna live forever floating in the clouds in some immaterial existence. To be quite honest, that's not very hopeful. There's a lot of questions that arise if you believe, if you believe that interpretation of this passage. Number one, if God created a material world, why would he then just scrap it? And number two is if this material world is just gonna pass away, then who cares how you treat it? Right? The answer is no, God is going to renew the world. It's gonna pass through the screen of judgment and what remains is gonna be a beautiful world for eternity that has no sin, has no darkness, has no pain. All the values opposed to God will be gone and you as a person will live in this world with a body that can no longer die. And you'll live in this beautiful new world without any sin. And that leads to the second piece of hope that we learn here, and that is that sin and all the pain and all the destruction that it causes has a shelf life. And amen to that. You may be this morning dealing with a tremendous amount of pain, maybe even destruction from your own sin or from sin outside of you that has been committed on you and the good news and the hope is that one day, that'll be gone. Sin has a shelf life. And that's a reason for hope. Shockingly, some of the most despairing people in our country today are Christians. And some of the more positive, upbeat people in our country are those that don't believe in God. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, and you're not a believer in God, you're, you're curious about who Christ is, you're trying to work it all out and figure this out, you may have, over the past year, recently looked around and seen Christians or people that claim to be followers of Christ exhibiting tremendous amounts of despair. And if you've seen that, I would just say, I'm so sorry you've seen that. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ does not produce that fruit. Followers of Christ should be the most confident and yet humble, humble confident, the most discerning and the most hopeful people in the world. Let's pray. Father, we have hope as we relate to this world, not because of just unfounded optimism, unfounded cheeriness, we have true, genuine hope because Jesus, you conquered the devil, you conquered sin, you conquered death when you died and when you rose. So Father, pray that you would make us a hopeful people. People who have a tremendous amount of confidence, 
Not because of what we're doing to stir it up, but because of what you've done. That you would make us a discerning people, not separating from the world, not consuming it uncritically, but that you would help us to be discerning. Father, I pray for those that are here that maybe are searching or those online that are joining us that are trying to figure out who Christ is and who God is and what Christianity is all about, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would see in this passage John gives us this incredible picture of confidence and discernment and hope relating to this broken world. Fathers, we close in worship now as we sing to you. Would you help us to sing with confidence and sing with joy and sing with hope? We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.